We're going to continue on in our series in the parables. And I have a question for dads on Father's Day to start uh, the sermon this morning. Has a misunderstanding ever gotten you into trouble, dads? You think of a time? Yes, I have confession already. That's good. Think of a time that a misunderstanding got you into trouble. You said it, she heard it. You said something that you thought was going to come out one way, and she heard it very differently. Or maybe uh, the misunderstanding was on the other person's part, and you were just fine, and they misunderstood. A misunderstanding getting you into trouble, like that happens regularly. I don't know about your world, but it happens regularly in my world. I think I communicate something, uh, and then someone hears it differently. Or I actually like do, in fact, communicate something, and someone misunderstands the intent, and that causes problems. Misunderstandings can get us into trouble, amen? Like Misunderstandings can cause problems and, and end up getting us into trouble. If a misunderstanding has ever caused a problem in your life, uh, you're in good company. Jesus was misunderstood regularly. As a matter of fact, one of the main things that Jesus does when he teaches and he uses these parables frequently to do so is to, to clear up misunderstandings that people had about him. Like, why was Jesus there? Who was he? What was he doing? What was he calling people to? What did it mean to follow him? What did it mean to give your life to him? What was he going to accomplish ultimately? People misunderstood Jesus regularly, and those misunderstandings always caused problems in people's lives. I would submit to you that people are still, 2,000 years later, misunderstanding Jesus, Right? We have ideas of what we think Jesus is about. People have ideas that they think they understand his message. They think they understand his identity and what he values and what it means to follow him. And misunderstandings still occur and they still cause problems. In Jesus' day, Jewish people had a, a real specific uh, expectation. The expectation, and people today we call it a messianic expectation. They had a specific expectation of what the Savior, the Messiah, was going to look like. And so hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophets in the Old Testament told about a Savior that was going to come and was going to save God's people, the nation of Israel. And most people in the time of Jesus read those prophecies and they thought, well, we're under Roman oppression in this day, and we're the people of God, and God doesn't want his people to be oppressed. And so that Savior, that Messiah, is going to come, and he's going to save us from this oppression. So it's going to mean political rule, and it's going to mean military rule. And so whoever, whoever shows up to be that Messiah, that Savior, is going to look a really certain way. And they had this understanding of that. And in fact, really even a, few, a couple hundred years, hundred plus years before the time of Jesus... Uh, several of these different people had come on the scene at, at different times before Jesus and looked like a military leader, looked like a military ruler and came in and did business with Rome and it lasted for a little while, but never really lasted that long. But all of that created this expectation that swirled around Jesus when he came and for three years he was performing miracles and he was teaching in ways that nobody had ever taught before. And, so, and he was also calling himself things like the son of man. And uh, people recognized that from prophecies in the Old Testament. And people started to think, like, Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus is actually the one that we've been waiting for and that we've been looking for. And so they had this expectation of what Jesus was going to be and what he was going to do. Unfortunately, many of them had a misunderstanding of that expectation. And misunderstandings always cause troubles. So when Jesus is teaching, he's trying to help correct some misunderstandings. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, is called the parable of the minas, and it's one of the places that Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding. 
In Luke chapter 18 and verse 31, it says this, And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, if you're one of Jesus' followers in that day, that's really exciting for you. Because all of the things that you read about in the prophets in the Old Testament, the Son of Man idea from Daniel, you're excited about what's going to happen. Our Messiah is here. He's going to save us. He's going to take care of us. We've already seen him do miracles. We know that he has power over nature. We know that he has power over the unseen realm. We know that he is powerful. And now he's going to exercise that power. He's going to go up to Jerusalem. And he's going to do business with the Roman government. And he's going to set God's people free. And the kingdom of God that it was promised in the Old Testament is going to show up. That's what the followers of Jesus are thinking at that time. Jesus takes them. It says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. As you read Luke's gospel specifically, uh, in Luke chapter 9, two different times, it says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And when Luke writes, you know that each of the different gospel writers wrote with a different emphasis. When Luke writes his gospel, there's this journey to Jerusalem that's taken place from Luke chapter 9 to where we're at in Luke chapter 19. And so the emphasis here is that Jesus is going up to accomplish the mission that he's been set forth. And his followers have this understanding of what that mission is going to look like. And then Jesus flips it and turns it all on its head in Luke 18, 32. Jesus says, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. They're like, that's not what we were expecting. We were expecting maybe more weaponry, fire. Uh, We've read the Old Testament prophets. They've got some really cool things to say about what's going to happen. And they're excited about what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus says, actually, I'm going, to just, I'm going to die, and it's not going to be pretty. And verse 34, it says, they understood none of these things. That's the disciples. That's the ones who've been following Jesus around for a long time. It says, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. That's why Jesus will teach the parable of the minus. In, in fact, The next event that happens after our parable today, as you see in your Bibles, is called the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and then enters Jerusalem and is going to do what everyone thinks that he's there to do. And so when he tells this parable, he's telling them a parable about what it means to be faithful to what God has called us to. Luke 19 verse 11 says this, as it sets up the parable, gives us the purpose. It says, as they heard these things... He proceeded to tell a parable. And you remember that parables, Jesus is using these stories to illustrate shocking spiritual truths. So he's getting a spiritual truth across by telling a story. And it says he proceeded to tell a story because. So he'll give reasons why he's telling this story. Because he was near to Jerusalem. Again, this is almost mission accomplished. And the mission that Jesus knew he was on was much different than the mission that they thought that he was on. There's a misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he's going to Jerusalem to accomplish. And if he doesn't clear that up, uh, it could have serious repercussions, ramifications. It says, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. His followers still, they followed him for three years. They've listened to his teaching. They've seen what he's doing. They still think that he's going to ride into Jerusalem and set everyone free. In fact, he is going to ride into Jerusalem and set everyone free, but it's going to involve a cross and not a sword. 
And so as he's telling this story, he's doing it because there, there's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and a misunderstanding of what he's all about. And I'd like to say this to us. Like, it's easy for us to misunderstand Jesus. It's easy for us to put our expectations on Jesus. It's easy for us to project our own agenda onto Jesus and his mission. It's easy for us to read and study the Bible from our vantage point and our point of view and with our expectations and our agenda, rather than it is to really see what is Jesus up to. If those disciples who followed Jesus around for three years, if those people who followed him and were interested in his ministry for all of that time could still misunderstand who he was and what he was up to, don't you think that there's a danger that I could do the same, that you could do the same? So it's always important for us to keep coming back to what is, what is it that Jesus is calling us to. And so as he tells this story, he's going to tell this story to say, let's make sure that you're following my agenda. Let's make sure that you understand my purpose and get on board with that purpose. And that's our job as Christians. So then in verse 12, he'll start to tell the story, and we'll get some of the, kind of the key players of the story. Verse 12 says, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. So just to tell you up front, the nobleman in the story is Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus going into a far country to receive a kingdom. This is Jesus going into heaven. He says he's going to go away. He's going to go into heaven, but he's going to return at some point in the future. From the vantage point of time in this story, Jesus is going to, in about a week, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. He's going to spend about 40 days on earth post-resurrection, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. So as he's telling the story, Jesus is putting himself into the story, saying there's a nobleman who went into a far country. He's, that's him going to heaven, and he's going to return again. Verse 13 Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So then the servants are the followers of Jesus. They're the disciples, and by extension, that's the followers of Jesus. And the picture in the story is that Jesus is going to go into heaven. He's going to ascend, and he calls his disciples together before he does that. And he says, I have mission for you to accomplish. I have kingdom work for you to do. The parable of the minas is slightly different than Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Same basic teaching, um, but there's several different aspects. And Jesus teaches two story, these two stories at two different times and emphasizes different aspects to help us understand certain things. In this particular story, it's like he lines up ten of his servants. He gives them each a mina. A mina was about three months' worth of wages. In that day for a nobleman, that's not a lot of money. When Jesus says you were faithful with very little, he actually means that in the story. That, that each of these ten were set up and they were each given the same amount to go and do business with. So the story isn't about uh, this person has more and this person has less and this person only has a little bit. Let's see what they can do with it. It's Jesus saying we all have responsibility. And so as he talks about the minas in the story and he says go and engage in business, I want us to think about that word Responsibility. That for everyone who's a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian today, you're a follower of Jesus, he's given you responsibility. He's gone into heaven, he's ascended, and he's given kingdom responsibility to each of us. That's things that we do for his honor and for his glory. That's things that we do that pertain to spiritual life and kingdom work. In fact, if you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 11 actually lays out 
what this means in real life. So in Luke 19, Jesus is telling a story. In Acts 1, 6 through 11, right after Jesus, as Jesus is ascending, about a month and a half later, he's going into heaven. You'll actually see how this story plays out in real life. It says this, so when they had come together, the disciples have come together. Jesus is, again, he's crucified. He rose again. He appeared. Uh, he was on earth post-resurrection for about 40 days doing things, appearing to different groups of people. And since they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now look, sometimes I feel bad because I teach things and people don't understand it, right? I'll get up here and I'll study and I'll preach and then everybody looks at me and they're like, what are you even talking about? And this week I feel better about myself because I'm like, they didn't understand Jesus either. And Jesus died and rose again and they're still asking the same question. Your kids come to your dads and they ask the same question, like I told you, 37 times. And they just ask the same question over again. Or if you're a teacher, right, and you're like, I taught this material eight times. And the kids are still scratching their head with the same question. Like, it happened to Jesus too. So I feel good as a preacher and a teacher today that Jesus, people didn't understand Jesus' message either. In Acts chapter 1, it's all gone down. And they say, so, so now's the time. Like, that resurrection thing was really cool. Like, maybe now's the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Where are the guns and the knives and the, where are all the stuff, right? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons, that, for that is the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. you got to admit, that's cool, right? Like, if you're those followers, you're like, I've seen a lot of cool stuff. That's the coolest. Because they're actually standing there, and they watch him go. They just said, are you going like, to restore the kingdom right now? In other words, when they said, are you going to restore the kingdom, they really were waiting to see, like, where's the army? Is it going to descend out of heaven? Like, we're going to be free. We're going to be the people of God. Is today actually the day? And he says, actually, i got something else for you. i got some work for you to do, right? I've got kingdom work for you to do. He's like, my mission isn't done yet. You see, they thought his mission was done with them. Sometimes I can think that the mission of God ended with me, right? The mission of God, he's still got work to do. Until the second coming of Christ, until the return of Christ, he's still got work to do. And guess who's there to do it? Us. The people of God are there to do the kingdom work of God. And so as these first disciples are looking, they're saying, Jesus is going to come. He's going to like, it's going to be great. He's like, I got work for you to do. And they're looking like, wow, that was really cool. He's gone. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's the same thing that Jesus is teaching about in Luke 19. He's like, I'm going to come again. And in the meantime, there's work for you to do. This parable is about in the meantime. This parable is about what do we do in the meantime? What has God given you? What has God called you to do, called me to do in my little piece of the in the meantime? We know that Jesus has ascended. We know that he's coming again. And right now, we're in the meantime. So what do we do? God's given us all kingdom responsibility. And so in the ensuing verses, 
with the parable, with these different groups, you see three responses, and I'll give them to you um, as we walk through it. Three responses. How do people respond to being given that responsibility? And the first one is faithful obedience. It's found in verses 15 to 19. Verse 15 says this, When he returned, that's the nobleman, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to, to, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Do you notice that there's the entrusting of responsibility and there's also calling to give account? There's responsibility and there's accountability. If you're a dad this morning, you give your kid a responsibility, usually you've got to give them some accountability, right? Do the dishes. That's the responsibility. What's the accountability? Or there won't be any allowance. That's how it works, right? There's responsibility and there's accountability. Here's the keys to a car. That's responsibility. What's the accountability? If you're not home in time, I'll have the keys back to the car, right? Responsibility and accountability. You know, Jesus works the same way, that he gives great responsibility, but that there's also accountability, in the story here, you see that it says that he had given them money and he called them to know what they had gained by doing business. In the story, in verse 12 and 13, it says that he told them to engage in business. That means to do something positive, to do something, like to be productive, to do something with what he had given them. That's going to factor into the story even more as we, as we go along. But he calls them to give an account. I want to illustrate this with two other passages. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due to him, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is called uh, the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ passage. And Paul is talking to Christians. This isn't like uh, there's, there's a judgment in Revelation called the great white throne judgment for non-believers, non-Christians. This is something different. This is a judgment of Christians for what they've done with what God entrusted to them. And he says that they will give an account. And I don't want to go into all the details of that. That's not what the sermon's for. But I want us to see the importance of like responsibility and of accountability that we've been given responsibility, and that there will be accountability. Like at the end, we'll be held accountable for that. Another passage is Matthew 16. Matthew 16 says, The Son of Man, verse 27, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay to each person according to what he has done. That will be held accountable. In this text, he says in, in Luke 19, verse 17, or verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minus more. Now, this is who you want as your like, financial consultant, by the way. If you can find this guy as your financial consultant, you're going to do okay. He takes three months' wages and he multiplies it tenfold. You're like, I'll take that guy. 30 months' wages for my three? That's the dude. Here's my paycheck. Here's my 401k. You're my guy. Invest that. That's, some, that's good. The second one, it says, oh, and, and verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful with a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas, that's really good. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Notice there's a reward for the faithfulness. 
We know from Scripture as well that there will be an eternal reward for faithfulness. But here's what I want you to see as we look at these verses, something really important to me, is that there's uh, something called faithfulness and there's something called fruitfulness. When I say fruitfulness, I'm talking about like productivity. Some of you have uh, jobs where um, your worth to the company is measured in terms of your productivity, right? The amount of money that you make for the company or manage for the, mo- the company or things like that, um, your productivity determines like your worth to the company and your compensation things like that. As a matter of fact, in a lot of different areas in our lives in the 21st century and in the culture that we live in, we're a fruitfulness culture. And by fruitfulness, I mean like productivity culture. We value productivity at work, at home, in other areas. One of the things that can happen is that we can sometimes put our value and our identity in our productivity. We put our value into the amount of money that we make for our company or the amount of productivity that we have at home or other places. And it's not altogether a a bad thing. As we've seen, like fruitfulness is important. But there's something more important than fruitfulness in God's economy. Do you know what it is? It's called faithfulness. And so many of us pursue fruitfulness without often thinking about like faithfulness. Both of the men in this story, as well as the men in Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, are commended for their faithfulness. I believe that God cares more about faithfulness than he does about fruitfulness. In your spiritual life and in all other areas in life. We can get caught up in what's called performance-based acceptance in our lives. Performance-based acceptance means like you're worth as much as you produce. You're, you're worth as much. You are worth as much as you perform. Your value and your identity comes from your productivity. And we know all through the scriptures that that's not true. You see, faithfulness, being faithful to what God has called us to, is about our character and it's about our heart. And for some of us, we'll be very, very, very faithful and we may not be very, very fruitful. And that's okay. But that'll be hard for some of us. That's hard for me at times. Like as a man in this culture, as a driven person in this culture, I tend to, to tie my identity, tie my value to how much I'm producing. Is the church growing? Then I'm doing a good job. Are things going well? Then I must be doing okay. Is it going great? Oh, that must be I'm worth more. And since this is a church, then I can very easily fall into then like I'm more acceptable to God. I'm doing more for God. But what God really has called me to is, is faithfulness. To know what God's called me to do as a pastor and to continue to do that. I thought about it like this. If you went to my bookshelves and you saw just all books on church growth and church management or secular leadership and just lots and lots of books on secular leadership, how to get your church to grow bigger, how to bigger budgets, how to build bigger buildings, and like all my bookshelves as a pastor were those kind of books. Would you be concerned? This is yes. Go right here and let me hear it. There we go. Yeah. There'd be a problem with that right? Because that's not what God has called me to ultimately. Now, should I be reading about how do we keep up with with what God is doing here? Absolutely. Should I be meeting with other pastors to say, help us understand the steps to continue to steward what God has given us? Absolutely. And we're doing that. But ultimately, what should be on my bookshelves mainly are commentaries and Bible study books and helping us to understand, helping me to understand God's word so that I'm ready to and prepared to preach and teach and continue to open this word. Because that's what God's called me to. And so faithfulness for me in ministry 
means preaching and teaching, shepherding the flock. It'd be very easy for us to fall into the fruitfulness mentality. What God cares about is faithfulness. And here's what I believe, that faithfulness will produce fruitfulness. But it'll produce it differently in different people's lives. And I'm not responsible for the fruitfulness God is. I'm not responsible for, for how many people come through the doors. I'm not responsible for fruitfulness in all the different areas of life. But what I am responsible for is faithfulness. And that's what he's teaching us through faithful obedience. As he shows us two examples of people who were both faithful. That meant they had to go out and they had to do something. They had to take what the nobleman had given them. And then they had to act on it. We're not told how they invested. We're not told what they did. Commentators will say this is actually a massive return on investment, whatever it was that they did. Jesus is probably trying to draw attention to that. But we don't want to read these stories and think, man, like that 10 guy was like the best because he made the most. And the 5 guy was like kind of okay, right? That ultimately they're commended because they were faithful to take what the master had given them and gone out and done something with it. And I want to promise you that if you will focus on faithfulness before you worry about fruitfulness, it'll change your outlook. Put your identity and your value in like the faithfulness that you have toward the Lord. So that's like the, the first of them, the first response. The second one then is fearful disobedience in verses 20 through 26. Verse 20 says this, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. That was their uh, version of a safe, or a safe deposit box, I guess. I don't know. Handkerchief doesn't seem real safe. If you've got like three months wages, I wouldn't put it in like a hanky and stick it somewhere. It'll probably get thrown away like that retainer, right? So like, there's, the, there's a concept here. I'll get at it in a minute. Verse 21 he says, for I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you. Now, I want you to mark that because that's an important word. That's kind of key to this guy's response. He says, I was afraid of you. I want you to notice that we've already watched this nobleman give actually extravagantly to, to two people, right? He, the one who made 10, he gave rulership over 10 cities. The one who made five, he gave rulership over five cities. He's actually, he's actually shown that he's pretty generous, but this servant says, I was afraid of you. And then he tells why. He says, I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He's almost making an accusation. And then in verse 22, he, the nobleman, says, I will condemn you with your own words. I want you to read it like this. He's saying, if what you say is actually true of me, then let's see what that leads to. He says, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man, so you suppose, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then, if that's true, why then did you not put your money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He's like, if I'm such a severe man, if I am, am do all these things that you said, then why didn't you at least do something? Now, I said to the first service, the banks in... Uh, the Jewish banks in that day must have been a lot different than the banks here in America today because they were just going to collect interest. So I don't know about you, but it seems like maybe something different going on there. Would you agree? Do we have money in banks, anyone? Okay, good. Yeah. It took the first service a minute to get that as well. Like, wait, I have money? Oh, yeah. 0.00005% interest really isn't that much, is it? 
Right. Okay. But he's saying, if I really am that severe, why didn't you at least do something? Right? The nobleman is saying, look, you just do something that's better than doing nothing. He says, then I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know this is a severe man taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I would have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, who has to, uh, excuse me, I tell you to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. One of the things that I see in fearful disobedience is this, is that misplaced fear, okay, misplaced fear can lead to mishandled opportunities. Do think about that. Like misplaced fear can lead to mishandled opportunities. Each person in this story was given the same opportunity. They were each given one minor. They were each given three months wages and an opportunity told to go and engage business. But because of this misplaced fear, he missed opportunities. And I think that we can miss spiritual opportunities through misplaced fear in our own lives. Let's say it like this. Some of us have this view of God that God is just always out there like waiting for us to screw up. God's actually always out there like handing us things, waiting to watch us drop it so then he can come down on us. If that's your view of God, like if your view of God has misplaced fear of God, like the wrong kind of fear of God, that's going to drive the way that you pursue your Christian life. I think about it with my kids. Like, I want my kids to have a healthy fear of me. And as any good parent, you want your kid to have a healthy fear. That means respectful fear. That means I know that dad is looking out for me and loves me and cares about me, so I am going to listen to him and abide by him and obey him. A healthy fear. I do not want my kids cowering in the corner, always thinking that dad is just waiting to blow up if they screw up. That's poor parenting. But some of us have that understanding of God. Some of us think that God is maybe kind of just like always there, like giving us opportunity and just waiting for us to screw that opportunity up. In this parable, he says, if you would have just done something. And misplaced fear can cause us to mishandle the opportunities that God gives us. It can cause us to pursue safety rather than opportunity. You notice that this servant pursued safety, but he didn't do what God called him to do. And there's an interesting parallel there. I don't know about you, I'm a safety guy, okay? My kids used to watch this little thing on TV. It's like this little short, it's called the Safety Patrol. And it was this like cartoon with these little kids running around like blowing the whistle every time somebody did something wrong and they were the Safety Patrol. Guys, I'm the Safety Patrol in life. I'm a first child, I'm conservative, like I'm not fun at all, ask people that are close to me, right? Because I'm the safety patrol, I'm like somebody could get hurt, we could lose money, something could go wrong, it could be bad, what if we, the safety patrol, here's what happens in, in the Christian life, people like me, safety people, can be like, we're safe, that means we're spiritual, safer means more spiritual, Jesus was safe. Have you ever read the Gospels? Obviously, it was very safe. And you can think that because I'm safe in life, that I'm somehow more spiritual. I'm safer with money. I'm safer with people. I'm safer with cars. I'm safer. And so then I'm more spiritual. Then you read the Gospels, and you're like, I don't know. Was Jesus really that safe? 
doesn't seem like it, was he? Right? Some people go like the safety route. You know there's another kind of person. They're the middle child and the youngest child. And every other child that's not the first. No, I'm just kidding. There's, there's safety people. And then there are people that I would affectionately term as stupid people. Okay? You think about this in terms of money, but it applies to lots of different areas. Safe people with money are like, let's bury it and make sure it stays there. You know, invest in gold and make sure you've got lots of guns to guard it. Safety people. Some of you are like, oh, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Safety people. Then you've got stupid people. Money? I got this plastic card. It's got unlimited money on it. I can get anything I want. This is amazing. It keeps sending them to me in the mail. And I can use this one to pay for that one and then that one to pay for that one. And the Amazon guy just keeps showing up with all the stuff I want. This is so cool. Stupid. Right? And safety people and stupid people look back and forth at each other and they're like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You're no fun. You're crazy. Right? And you're just back and forth at each other. And in a Christian life, what happens is some of us think that, like, we're being safe and we're more spiritual. And other people are like, like, we're being spiritual because we're taking all the risk. And really what they're doing is just being stupid. And what God really calls us to is stewardship, right? Three S words. I know you can write them down, right? He calls us to be wise stewards of the stuff that he's given us. And that's what he's calling, us, calling these guys to here. And what happens is that fear can cause us to run towards safety, and we can actually, like, safety can disguise as disobedience, right? And then other people run the other direction, and they're like, ah, you know what? God's given. I, we're just going to trust the Lord and just do whatever we want. And God's like, I also gave you a brain and a Bible and wise counsel. Stewardship. Here's how that's playing out at Puyallup Community Baptist Church right now. In the area of finances, it's like, we want to read Scripture, and as we're walking through Scripture, we want to see how God has called us to live in certain ways. And individually, there are certain things for each of you with this, but corporately, we're identifying some of these things as well. God has continued to bless our church. He's blessed it in a lot of ways. I think the main way that God has blessed our church is by continuing to bring like good, God-loving, God-fearing people here and to help us grow in a healthy way and grow at a healthy rate. That doesn't have anything to do with money. It doesn't have anything to do with buildings or any of those other markers. But I think it's spiritual health, and I like that. He's also caused us to grow financially. And we're very open and transparent about that. You can see all of the finances at any time that you want. But one of the things that's happened is that we've continued to save money. And we've been wise at saving money. And God's brought money in. And many of us were here through lean years. And so we saved the money. And so we built our bank account. Then many of us have started to look around and be like, man, this building is like 50, 60 years old, and the kitchen hasn't been remodeled in 50, 60, 130 years, and there's something probably needs to happen about it. So we started to say, like, hey, you know, God's given us finances, and we could remodel the kitchen, and we could remodel some bathrooms, and we could remodel the stage, and we could fit more people, and, and we started to talk about, like, all these projects that we could do, and it's really great, and people are excited, and it's a lot of fun, and then this person has an idea, and then that person, and, you know, ideas generate ideas. Oh, yeah, you could do that, and then I could do this, and then somebody else is like, we got money? I know. Let's do this. So last week, I'm not going to put him on the spot, but I will kind of. Our wise deacon chairman, Dave, called us together for a meeting. And he got a big whiteboard out. And he started writing down, if we do all the projects, here's what we have in the bank. 
here's what this project will cost. Here's what this project will cost. Here's what this bid came in as. Here's what this thing is that you approved. Line them all up. And then also said, by the way, we've been talking with some godly people who say, like, you know, the economy may not be perfect all the time. We should have some wisdom in that. Maybe it'd be wise to put a few months of operating expenses away so that, like, in a in worst case scenario, like, we can still pay the bills. Lists all that stuff out and says, now, like, here's all the stuff that we could spend. Here's where our bank account is right now. It's in a good place. It's not in this place, Right? We could do a couple things. We could be safe. Let's not spend anything. That kitchen's fine. It's worked for the last 90 years. It'll work for another 90, right? Let's be safe. Let's store it all away and do that. Or we could be stupid. Ah, just spend. They give those cards to churches too, right? Let's just spend, spend, spend. Let's not even worry about it. Like, don't even get bills for things. Don't even get, yeah, let's just spend. Stupid. What we want to do is we want to be stewards. And so as the deacons, as a group, they look at all the things and they say, okay, what can we get done and for how much and what are we going to do and how much are we going to put in the bank for a rainy day? We don't need to play it safe and, and do too much, but we don't want to be stupid and do too little. On July 9th, they're going to give you a report about what all that looks like. Because, again, transparency is a big deal. But on July 9th, Pastor Lauren will give a, a presentation at the end of the first service. So you're all going to have to get up early. You're going to have to come at 10.15, grab a cup of coffee and a donut, and he'll talk through that. What I want you to see is that this stuff actually has real meaning for the way that we live. As a church, we want to be a church of faithful obedience, right? With our money that God is like, and, and actually not our money, with God's money that he's blessed us with, and everyone tithes and gives, and then we have this money that's God's money. We want to have a life of faithful obedience with that. Not fearful disobedience. I would say that same thing applies to my life individually and to your lives individually, not just with money, with so many things. I used the example in the first service of my daughter going on a missions trip again next week to Mexico. Next Sunday, you guys, I'll be a basket case because she's going to be in Mexico. And I'm like, all I want is safety for my daughter. And I joked around, like, safety, like, I could, I could, like, really pursue safety. You guys seen the movie Rapunzel, right? That was old Disney, so you can say yes, it's okay. But, like, Rapunzel, like, they locked her in a tower. She was safe. She was also a prisoner, right? I don't want to make my kid a prisoner. So I got to steward that well. Make sure there's enough guns and ammo going on the trip with her that she's safe. That's good. That's perfect. Good. We're good, Right? But it applies in so many areas of our lives, so many different areas and so many different places. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of what? Fear. He did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and King James of a sound mind, of self-control in the other translations. I was reminded this morning, I wrote it down, Romans 8.15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. God doesn't want us living in fear. Romans says, but the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's a Father's Day verse for you. You don't have a spirit of, of slavery and fear, but a spirit of freedom as we live in obedience. The third and final response is foolish rejection. And Jesus 
embeds this into the story because he's talking to people, many of whom will reject him. And he says in verse 14, but his citizens hated him. When he says the citizens, he's referring back to the fact that he went to the far country to to gain the kingdom in the story. He's like the citizens of that kingdom hated him and sent a delegation that went after him and said, we do not want this man to reign over us. That actually happened in Rome in that day. That rulers, there was one that was actually, and I won't go into all the details, but one of the sons of Herod the Great, they made him go to Rome. Nobody liked him. They sent him to Rome so that he had to appeal to Caesar to be able to be the king over Judea. And they reject, Rome rejected him because a delegation went after him and said, we don't like this guy. So Jesus is actually like playing, riffing on something that happened in that culture and changing the meaning a little bit. These are the Jewish people, the religious leaders who had rejected Jesus in that day. Jesus is saying there will be some who will be obedient. There will be some who will be disobedient. There will be those who will reject. Reject who Jesus is and all that he has to offer. Then in verse 27, it talks about what will happen to those people. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And again, remember, this is a story that's supposed to be shocking. And that's the shocking spiritual truth. That rejection leads to retribution. So there's three responses that we can have to the responsibilities that God has given us. And in the couple minutes that we have left, I want to get like really practical on what does that mean. It's easy for me to stand up here and say like, hey, we each have like kingdom responsibilities in our own lives. But I'm going to get really practical on what that means. And the Protestant reformers uh, taught something called the doctrine of vocation. And I didn't, we talk about vocation meaning work. They meant much more than that. So it was a response against the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church in that day, maybe not so much today, but in that day, um, one of the misguided teachings was that the only people who had like spiritual calling in life were like the priests. And they were the spiritual ones. And then everybody else, the things that they did, just they were kind of mundane. They didn't mean much. And the Reformers read the Bible and they were like, that doesn't seem to be the case. Actually, like all of life is a calling and everyone has a calling. And so the reformers taught the doctrine of vocation. And the doctrine of vocation in like modern parlance and the way that we talk today was saying that all Christians have a spiritual calling in different areas of life. And that actually each individual Christian has a specific calling in some different areas of life. So this means this is like really, really personal. For the ladies, young ladies who are on the front row who are Christians, like they have a spiritual calling in the areas of their life. And that each of you, wherever God has you in life, has a spiritual calling. And so the Reformers talked about it in three really specific spheres. I'll give them to you. The first sphere was the sphere of home, okay? So dads, each one of us today has a specific calling, first and foremost, at home, to shepherd our families well, to teach our children, to be godly examples That's our kingdom responsibility. Let's not forget that first and foremost, that at home, the example that I set, do I repent of sin? You know, when I go off and I yell at my kids, which never happens in my house, but it probably does at yours. So like, right, how are we doing there? So, So at home, whatever that looks like for you, maybe you have a roommate or maybe you, whatever it is, but there's the sphere of home. Then the next one was the sphere of church. And they said that church was a place where everybody came and took responsibility. 
that you show up, you gather together, that you spiritually encourage each other while you're there, that you give to the church, that you spend your time and your talents and your treasure, and you invest those things. And so for everybody who was a Christian and everybody who's a Christian today, like that's a sphere of kingdom responsibility. That it can be at this church, it can be at a parachurch organization, it can be involved in some outside way, but in, this, in the spiritual realm, that each of you has a calling before God. And then the final one, they called it the state. We'll call it just society in general, right? That we have calling at home, that we have calling at church, and then we have calling wherever God has placed us in society. How many of you, raise your hand, you have a job outside of the home. You have like a, a job somewhere in culture. You're not around Christian people. Raise your hands for me and let us see them. We have four people who have jobs. I am really shocked at the tithing. I just said that we like, you know, man. If God has placed you somewhere, whether it's at your job or whether it's a hobby or whether it's your kids, sports events or whatever it is, that he's placed you in these different places, in your neighborhood, with your neighbors, like he's given kingdom responsibility there. Things for you to steward in that realm. Now the question that each of us has to answer is then, then what, is, what is mine? Okay. So if I boil this down to a statement, it's like this. It is my personal, my responsibility to be faithful with my God-given opportunities. Right? And mine are different than Evans. Evans are different than Jordan's. Jordan's are different than Eddie's. We could go on and on and on. Each of us have different spheres and different responsibilities, but God's given them to each of us. So then the question is, and what is your mina? What is your thing that God has entrusted with you with? And understanding that there will be an account for how we've handled those things and what we've done with those things at the end. So the sermon supplement this week, again, that we put out every week, like I tried to delineate home, church, and society to give you some opportunity maybe to talk with somebody else or to think with a few other people about like what would that look like for me personally and how can I do a better job at being faithful and stewarding those things. So I hope that you'll take that and actually like think through a little bit more what those applications would be for your own life. Let's pray together. Father, it's always good uh, to be with your people. It's always good to be in your word. On Father's Day, it's, it's great to be here um, knowing the special calling that you've given us as Christian dads. God, as we're reminded uh, this morning from this text, you have given each of us, entrusted each of us with kingdom responsibilities. I pray this morning that you would help us to be faithful with what you've given us. I pray for each Christian in the room right now, God, that you would help us um, to have the boldness in our own lives to ask this week, where are those places in our lives? And then how can we continue to be faithful or begin to be faithful um, with what you've called us to in that? And God, I pray that the second coming of Christ and that uh, giving of an account would actually be a good motivation for us. God, for the person who's here who struggles with finding their value and their identity in, in how much they produce versus their faithfulness to you, would you encourage them this morning to know that faithfulness is what you're searching for? God, I just pray again that you would continue to strengthen us today. Um, Father's Day means many things to many people, so you know who needs encouragement, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage.